McGregor Mathers died in 1918, a casualty of that worldwide influenza epidemic whose victims numbered more than those of the Somme Second Mons and the other great bloodlettings of the First World War. He was succeeded by his widow, Moina Mathers, who carried on the Alpha et Omega in cooperation with the now aging Brody Eines. Alas, however, the mantle of Elijah did not descend on Mrs. Elijah, and Mrs. Mathers governed the order in an erratic and, at times, unintelligent manner. One of her more extraordinary actions is referred to by Rigardi in his My Rosicrucian Adventure. She gave permission to the chief of an American temple to conduct a correspondence course, at the conclusion of which pupils were initiated by post in return for a fee of $10. Following this, there was a rapid mushrooming in the number of American temples, and while the number of genuine adepti grew less and less, there was a vast increase in the numbers of those who combined magical ineptitude with high-sounding titles and grades. Several initiates, disgusted by this unsatisfactory state of affairs, broke away and formed independent temples and groups which continued to teach the Golden Dawn system, although not usually in its entirety. Typical of these was the School of Ageless Wisdom, founded by Paul Foster Case and surviving to the present day as the builders of the Aditum Limited which did not, for example, use the original Golden Dawn designs of the tarot cards, but instead adopted a modified version of the pack designed by A.E. Waits. Perhaps the major problem Mrs. Mathers had to face in the 20s was her relationship with the young psychic and occultist Violet Firth. The latter, who later married a Dr. Evans, but is best known by her pen name of Dion Fortune, was initiated as a neophyte of the Alpha at Omega in 1919. Although still young, she had been fascinated by the occult tradition for as long as she could remember, and while still in her teens, had developed marked mediumistic powers, which had caused some excitement in the small country town where she was living. At first, she was a member of what she referred to as the Southern Branch of the Scottish Section of the Order. In other words, an English temple operating under the general overlordship of Brodie Ines. But in 1920, she transferred to a London temple working directly under the rule of Mathers's widow. Mrs. Mathers, usually known to her fellow hermeticists as Vestigia, was impressed by the energy of the slim young girl for Violet approached the magical arts with the same enthusiasm that she gave to the rest of her many and varied interests. These included the problem of purity, the psychology of the servant problem, and the soybean as an article of diet, on all of which subjects she was to write books within a short space of time. Gian Fortune, it is perhaps best to use the name by which she wished to be known, was impressed by the Golden Dawn teachings, but not by the way they were taught in the Alpha at Omega. She wrote, Practical teaching from official sources was conspicuous by its absence, and unless one was lucky enough to have a personal friend among its members with the gift of exposition, one was left high and dry. <clears throat> one was put through the ceremonies, given the bare bones of the system in the knowledge lectures and a few commentaries on them called side lectures, 
for the most part of very inferior quality and left to one's own devices. She felt that the order needed new blood, that it was manned mainly by widows and gray bearded ancients. And she came to the conclusion that this end could best be achieved by organizing a public or semi-public society to act as an outer court to the Golden Dawn system, a sort of magically orientated theosophical society, which would arrange public meetings, organize lectures, issue a magazine, etc. She approached her chief with this proposal, and surprisingly enough, for previously Mrs. Mathers had shared her husband's passion for secrecy, it was accepted. Thus, in 1922, the Fraternity of the Inner Light came into existence, although for a considerable time it acted under the guise of the Christian Mystic Lodge of the Theosophical Society. And through its work, a trickle of new recruits began to come into the Golden Dawn. These were welcomed eagerly by Mrs. Mathers, who had by now become an enthusiastic empire builder, prepared to sacrifice quality for quantity. Footnote, in 1926, her introduction to a new edition of one of her husband's works not only referred to the esoteric school founded by her husband, but intimated that a mission to it could be obtained by writing to her, care of the publisher. A pamphlet issued by her in the United States was, I believe, even more explicit. But she soon became aware that in the fraternity of the inner light, Dion Fortune, already beginning to indulge in much astral travel, getting trance messages from masters of the Western tradition, etc., was beginning to build up a little empire of her own. Mrs. Mathers took appropriate action and tried to expel Dion Fortune for, quote, betraying the inner secrets of the order, end quote, in her book, Esoteric Philosophy of Love and Marriage, but later forgave gave her when it was pointed out to Vestigia that Dion Fortune had not yet achieved the grade in which this teaching was given. This whole episode puzzles me, for I can find little resemblance between the wishy-washy, semi-spiritualist meanderings of esoteric philosophy of love and marriage, probably Dion Fortune's worst book, and any aspect of the Order's teaching. A little later, Mrs. Matthews took strong objection to a series of articles that her erstwhile favorite published in the Occult Review. They were later republished under the title of Sane Occultism, and first suspended and finally expelled her on the grounds that certain symbols had not appeared in her aura from the order. Dion Fortune persisted in using the order system and set up a temple of her own, which had a semi-amicable relationship with the surviving temples of the Stella Matutina. Mrs. Mathers met this defiance by using black magic and launching a psychic attack on the rebel, or so at any rate, Dion Fortune believed. Whether they were objective or subjective, the experiences undergone by Dion Fortune were most unpleasant. She described them as follows. My first intimation of it was a sense of uneasiness and restlessness. Next came a feeling as if the barriers between the seen and the unseen were full of rifts, and I kept on getting glimpses of the astral mingling with my waking consciousness. This, for me, is unaccustomed, for I am not naturally psychic. And in the technique in which I was trained, we are taught to keep the different levels of consciousness strictly separate, and to use a specific method for opening and closing the gates. 
Consequently, one, one seldom gets spontaneous psychism. One's vision resembles the use of a microscope in which one examines prepared material. The general sense of vague uneasiness gradually matured into a definite sense of menace and antagonism. And presently I began to see demon faces and flashes resembling those picture images, which psychologists call by the unpleasing name of hypnagogics, flashes of dream which appear upon the threshold of sleep. I was quite unsuspicious of any particular individual, though I realized that my articles had probably stirred somebody up pretty thoroughly. What was my surprise then to receive from a person who I looked upon as a friend and for whom I had the greatest respect, a letter which left me in no doubt whatever as to the source of the attack and what I might expect if any more articles were published. I can honestly say that until I received this letter, I had not the slightest suspicion that this person was implicated in the scandals I was attacking. I was in a somewhat difficult position. I had fired off a charge of shrapnel on general principles and had apparently bagged a number of my friends and associates and fluttered the dovecote generally. My position was rather complicated by the fact that I did not know nearly as much as they apparently suspected me of doing. I had, of course, known that these abuses existed sporadically about the occult field, as everybody in the movement knows. But to know in this vague way is one thing, and to put one's finger on, on specific cases is another. I had evidently blundered into something much more considerable than, considerable than I had bargained for. I felt like the small boy who, fishing for minnows, has hooked a pike. I had to decide whether I would try and get my articles back from the occult review or whether I would let them run their natural course and take the consequences. I had had a very strong impulse to write those articles, and now I began to see why I had had it. I shall have something to say in another chapter concerning the Watchers, that curious section of the occult hierarchy which is concerned with the welfare of nations. A certain section of the work is apparently concerned with the policing of the astral plane. Very little is actually known about them. One comes across their work sporadically and pieces the bits together. I have crossed their trail on several occasions, as I will tell later. Whenever black magic is afoot, they set to work to put a spoke in its wheels. Be that as it may. I came to the conclusion that, in view of what had now transpired, the impulse I had had to take in hand this piece of work might have emanated from the watchers. At any rate, the work obviously needed doing. Someone had to tackle these plague spots if they were to be cleared up. So I determined to stick to my guns and see the matter through, and so left the articles in question to run their course. Very soon, some curious things began to happen. We became most desperately afflicted with black cats. They were not hallucinatory cats, for our neighbors shared in the affliction, and we exchanged commiserations with the caretaker next door, who was engage engaged in pushing bunches of black cats off doorstep and windowsill with a broom, and declared he had never in his life seen so many or such dreadful specimens. The whole house was filled with the horrible stench of the brutes. Two members of our community at that time went out to business every day, and at their offices in different parts of London, they found the same penetrating reek of the tomcat. 
At first, we attributed this persecution to natural causes and concluded that we were near neighbors of some fascinating feline female, but incidents succeeded each other, which made us feel that things were not quite in the ordinary course of nature. We were getting near to the vernal equinox, which is always a difficult time for occultists. There was a sense of strain and tension in the atmosphere, and we were all feeling decidedly uncomfortable. Coming upstairs after breakfast one morning, I suddenly saw, coming down the stairs towards me, a gigantic tabby cat, twice the size of a tiger. It appeared absolutely solid and tangible. I stared at it petrified for a second, and then it vanished. I instantly realized that it was a simulacrum, or thought form, that was being projected by someone with occult powers. Not that that realization was any too comforting, but it was better than an actual tiger. Feeling decidedly uncomfortable, I asked one of my household to join me, and as we sat in my room meditating, we heard the cry of a cat from without. It was answered by another and another. We looked out of the window, and the street as far as we could see was dotted with black cats, and they were wailing and howling in broad daylight, as they do on the roofs at night. I rose up, gathered together my paraphernalia, and did an ex exorcism then and there. At the end, we looked out of the window again. The visitation was at an end. Only our normal population of local mousers remained to us. The vernal equinox was now upon us. I must explain that this is the most important season of the year for occultists. Great power tides are flowing on the inner planes, and these are very difficult to handle. If there is going to be astral trouble, it usually blows up for a storm at this season. There are also certain meetings which take place on the astral plane, and many occultists attend them out of the body. In order to do this, one has to throw oneself into a trance, and then the mind is free to travel. It is usual to get someone who understands these methods of work to watch beside the body while it is vacated to see that it comes to no harm. In the ordinary way, when an occult attack is afoot, one clings to waking consciousness at all costs, sleeping by day and keeping awake and meditating while the sun is below the horizon. As ill luck would have it, however, I was obliged to make one of these astral journeys at this season. My attacker knew this as well as I did. I therefore made my preparations with all the precautions I could think of, gathered together a carefully chosen group to form the watching circle, and sealed up the place of operation with the usual ceremonial. I had not much faith in this operation other, under the circumstances, for my attacker was of much higher grade than I was, and could come through any seals I might set. However, it afforded me protection against minor unpleasant unpleasantness. The method of making these astral journeys is highly technical, and I cannot enter upon it here. In the language of psychology, it is auto-hypnosis by means of a symbol. The symbol acts as a door to the unseen. According to the symbol chosen will be the section of the unseen to which access is obtained. The trained initiate, therefore, does not wander on the astral like an uneasy ghost, but comes and goes by well-known corridors. My enemy's task was therefore not a difficult one, for she knew about the time I must make this journey and the symbol I must use in order to get out of the body. 
I was therefore prepared for opposition, though I did not know what form it would take. These astral journeys are really lucid dreams in which one retains all one's faculties of choice, willpower, and judgment. Mine always begin with a certain of the symbolic color through whose folds I pass. No sooner was I through the curtain on this occasion than I saw my enemy waiting for me, or if another terminology is preferred, I began to dream about her. She appeared to me in the full robes of her grade, which were very magnificent, and barred my entry, telling me that by virtue of her authority, she forbade me to make use of these astral pathways. I replied that I did not admit her right to close the astral path to me because she was personally offended, and that I appealed to the inner chiefs to whom both she and I were responsible. Then ensued a battle of wills in which I experienced the, the sensation of being whirled through the air and falling from a great height and found myself back in my body. But my body was not where I had left it, but in a heap in the far corner of the room, which looked as if it had been bombed. By means of the well-known phenomenon of repercussion, the astral struggle had apparently communicated itself to the body which had somersaulted around the room while an agitated group had rescued the furniture from its path. <clears throat> I was somewhat shaken by this experience, which had not been a pleasant one. I recognized that I had had the worst of it and had been effectually, effectually ejected from the astral paths. But I also realized that if I accepted this defeat, my occult career was at an end. Just as a child who has been thrown by his pony must immediately get up and remount if, he's, if he is ever to ride again, so I knew that at all costs I must make that astral journey if I were to retain my powers. So I told my group to pull themselves together and reform the circle because we must make another attempt. I invoked the inner chiefs and went out once more. This time there was a short, sharp struggle and I was through. I had the vision of the inner chiefs and returned. The fight was over. I have never had any trouble since. But when I took off my clothes in order to go to bed, my back felt very sore. And taking a hand glass, I examined it in the mirror and I found that from neck to waist, I was scored with scratches as if I had been clawed by a gigantic cat. I told this story to some friends of mine, experienced occultists, who at one time had been closely associated with the person with whom I had had this trouble. And they told me that she was well known for these astral attacks and that a friend of theirs after a quarrel with her had an exactly similar experience and she too had been covered with claw marks. In her case, however, she had been ill for six months and had never touched occultism again. <clears throat> There's a footnote to this. It will be noted that in this quotation, Dion Fortune merely describes her opponent as, quote, a person I looked upon as a friend, unquote. But in her article, Ceremonial Magic Unveiled, in the Occult Review, January 1933, she clearly identifies this friend with Mrs. Mathers. Elsewhere, Dion Fortune actually accused Mrs. Mathers of the psychic murder of Miss Netta Fornario, a member of the Alpha at Omega, who had died in unusual and mysterious circumstances. 
the alleged murder victim who had an Italian father whom she hated and an English mother was in appearance a typical member of the arts and crafts movement wearing handwoven silken or woolen tunics and dressing her dark hair in two heavy plates. In the autumn of 1929, when she was about 35 years of age, she left her London home and traveled to the Holy Isle of Iona, situated off the western coast of Scotland, taking with her a large amount of luggage, which included packing cases containing sufficient furniture to fully equip a small house. Clearly, she intended to stay in Iona, her, intended her stay in Iona to be a lengthy one. For the moment, however, she boarded with Mrs. McRae, a native of the island, who fascinated her lodger with stories of mysterious happenings and the folklore of the Hebrides. Mrs. McRae was equally fascinated by her guest, whom she suspected of indulging in what she was later to call, quote, mystical practices, end quote. Her fascination turned to alarm, however, when Miss Fonario told her that she had recently undergone a trance lasting a full week and thought that there was a strong possibility that she might again undergo such a trance in the near future. Under no circumstances, added Miss Fonario, was Mrs. McRae to call a physician. One Sunday morning, some two months after she had arrived on Iona, Miss Fonario got up very early a marked break in her routine, for normally she lay in bed until 11. She seemed to be in a panic-stricken state and told her landlady that she had to make an immediate departure for London. She added that certain people were affecting her telepathically and went on to talk in a disjointed way of a rudderless boat that went across the sky and messages she had received from other worlds. Mrs. McRae was disturbed by this, and her Highland superstitions were amused by the fact that, overnight, Miss Fornario's silver jewelry had turned completely black. Footnote. It would be interesting to know whether Miss Fornario was a vegetarian, and if so, whether eggs formed a considerable part of her diet. My friend, Gillian Dutfield, expert on modern gold and silver jewelry and owner of those two delightful browsing places called Craft Gallery, tells me that she has known vegetarians whose sweat contains a high percentage of sulfur com compounds derived from eggs, that silver jewelry would turn black on them within half an hour of it being donned. At that time, it was impossible to get a boat to mall on a Sunday. It is not particularly easy today, and Miss Fenario spent the day packing her belongings. Suddenly, she changed her mind. She retired to her room for a short time and then came out with what was later described as, quote, a calm look of resignation on her face, end quote, telling her hostess that she had decided to cancel her departure and would now remain indefinitely on Iona. On the following morning, Miss Fenario was missing from her room. At first, Mrs. McRae was not unduly alarmed and thought that her guest was simply taking an early walk along the beach. But as the day wore on, her fears were aroused and a search was made of the nearby moors and beach. Some two and a half miles from the cottage were the remains of an ancient village in which Miss Fenario had displayed a strong interest. She had never visited it, however, for access was difficult, 
the site being surrounded by rocks on three sides and by moor and peat bog on the other. It was within half a mile of this village that, on the Tuesday, her dead body was found. Except for the black cloak of the Hyrus, an important officer in the Golden Dawn Temple, the body was naked. Round its neck was a black and silver chain. In its hand was a large steel knife. The soles of its feet were torn and had bled heavily, although the heels were intact. Clearly, Miss Fernario had ran for a considerable distance before she had come to her stopping place and cut into the turf the large cross on which, so the examining physician said, she had met her death by heart failure. The Occult Review, January 1930, briefly reported the death as follows. The mysterious death of a student of occultism, Miss Anne Fernario, is receiving the attention of the authorities at the present time. Miss Fernario was found lying nude on the bleak hillside in the lonely Isle of Iona. Round her neck was a cross secured by a silver chain, and near at hand lay a large knife which had been used to cut a large cross in the turf. On this cross, her body was lying. A resident of London, Miss Fernario seems to have made her way to Iona for some purpose connected with occultism. One of the servants at her house in London stated that a letter had been received saying she had a, quote, terrible case of healing on, end quote. One newspaper re report alludes to mysterious stories on the island about blue lights having been seen in the vicinity of where her body was found, and there is also a story of a cloaked man. Occultists no less than the general public will await with interest any disclosures that may be forthcoming concerning this occurrence. I think it's certain that either Miss Fernario was the victim of some sort of magical attack or, and most people will believe this to be the more probable explanation, was suffering from an acute attack of schizophrenia and believed herself subjected to such an attack. Dion Fortune had no doubts on the matter, for after reproducing the above brief quotation from the Occult Review, she stated that the body was scratched, that Miss Fernario had been associated with Mrs. Mathers, and that victims of the latter's alleged astral attacks always have the marks of scratches. Now, what Francis King in this chapter uh, neglects to mention and what Dion Fortune also neglects to mention is that Miss um, Fernario's death occurred almost 18 months after Moina Mathers died. So how she could be the perpetrator of both attacks is really unclear. <laughs> 